Hello, fellow Kentuckians and other friends, and welcome to a new edition of my old Kentucky podcast. My name is Robert Connie, and joining me, as always, is Jasmine Smith. Jasmine, how are you today? Doing well, Robert. How are you? Doing doing well. Doing well. It's, uh, it's you know, I, I realized today that it like it's still like sort of light at like six o'clock so you know we're, we're coming back to you know winter is winter is you know almost we're almost through it it's no longer negative 10 degrees outside uh the snow is melting so you know i feel feel good this week I feel pretty good this week we yeah, had a great show the, the rain washed all the salt off my car <laughs> yeah absolutely all that stuff we have a good show this week. Cassie Chambers, Senator Cassie Chambers Armstrong is our guest. She talked to us about her diaper bill, uh, the bill to remove the diaper tax, um, which she is optimistic will pass this session. So that's really crazy, really great news. Um, so, you know, we talked to her about that. We talked to her about what it would mean to get it passed, how it will pass, how she built the co- coalition that supports it, um, you know, including Damon Thayer, uh, who is going to, looks like, be pretty instrumental in getting this thing passed. So that's... That, that's a really interesting conversation. We really encourage you to check it out there at the end of the show. But there, during the first part of the show, we have lots of other things to talk about. First and foremost, the budget has been released. They released HB1 and HB6, which I'll get into why they're two different bills, what's going on here. We're going to talk about that first. It's, of course, a big discussion. It's not finished, but this is the first piece of the budget process these days. Um, it used to be the governor started, but now we pretty much just start wherever the legislature wants to. So that's what we're going to talk about first. And then... A lot of other things happen too. So Jasmine's going to tell us all about that. So that includes HB5 passing out of committee. That's the Safer Kentucky Act. Um, a really kind of interesting, weird story about a bill about first cousins being able, being removed from the incest law and then put back in uh, a DEI bill that's making its way through you know, the, the legislature and a bill about source of income discrimination that has made a lot of news this week. So Jasmine's going to tell us all about that. But first and foremost, we're going to talk about the budget. So let's go ahead and get right into that. Jasmine, you know, the only thing that Kentucky has to do in the legislative session is to pass a budget every even numbered year. Um, that's that's the thing that they have to do. And the 2024 draft of the budget, which, you know, was written by the GOP-led legislature, dropped last week. And it's it's a doozy. There's a lot in there. It's a big piece of legislation. And there's a lot of stuff going on. So it is split into two different bills. Usually HB1 is like the main budget, but this year HB6 is the normal budget. We're going to talk about HB6 plenty in just a minute, but the first thing I wanted to talk about is HB1, which HB1 this year is um, a bill full of one-time expenditures, a lot of money being spent and one-time expenditures to do a bunch of different stuff. So it includes, HB1 includes expenditures like $150 million for wastewater and drinking water infrastructure, $450 million for local government funds to match federal dollars in a grant program, a billion dollars, pretty close to, I think it's like $950 million, uh, for, for pension, prog- uh, you know, public pensions, just funding pensions, you know, I think there's three or four different pensions that they're putting money towards. There's about $30 million for different highway projects, and there's lots and lots of other kind of smaller things. It's kind of crazy to be like, oh, yeah, that's only like $15 million, just a drop in the bucket, but that's like $15 million we weren't going to be spending otherwise. So that's what HB1 is, a bunch of one-time expenditures that are not recurring um, necessarily, but but stuff that they wanted to put money towards 
uh, just this year. Total total spending in HB1 is about $1.7 billion, and that amount basically will be funded from surpluses in previous years. So we have a big rainy day fund. Uh, we've talked about the rainy day fund before, and we are going to take some of that money and put it towards things like pensions and you know federal match grants and uh, highways and you know water infrastructure. Uh, one thing to know about this, and, and you may be thinking about this if you pay very close attention to the legislature, is that while uh, that, that this bill uh, is not going to impact the tax cut triggers that exist that you know potentially you know um, remove or lower uh, the income tax, there is this structure in place that says you know if uh, our general fund expenditures exceed a certain amount, we will not put those uh, triggers in place. This bill it uses a term called notwithstanding, and it says basically these this number does not count towards those tax cuts. Um, there's a pretty good argument that you can make. I think that you could say that like that's out of sync with the original bill. That's out of the um, normal situation. You're creating these exemptions. Why are you doing that? Why did you put this thing? Why did you make rules if you were just going to break them? Um, that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, there's also another side of the argument to be like, well, these are just one-time expenditures. We have the money. We might as well put the money to it. Um, we wouldn't do it if uh, you know it was going to prevent us from having these tax cuts. Or whatever, but you know, I think it's a little silly that they came up with this structure and then they're running afoul of it pretty much immediately. Uh, at the end of the day, the thing about HB one, it's good. You know, we're spending money on things we need to be spending on. The thing is, it's not good enough. We need a lot more spending on a lot more things. We have the money; we should be spending it. Um, you know, it's great that we're spending money on water infrastructure. We have a lot of other infrastructure needs: our energy infrastructure, our you know, internet infrastructure, all kinds of infrastructure uh, we have needs around. Um, and, and there's definitely projects we we could put in place to, to do a lot more stuff around that. You know, our pensions are still pretty underfunded. Uh, you know, we, we could put more money towards them. Um, you know, that there's other things that we could spend money on in the regular budget uh, that, that can come up to. Um, but, you know, as far as what I rather have this bill or not have it, of course I'd rather have it. I think it's great that we're spending some of the money to do things that we need. So that's HP1. Jasmine, any questions about HP1? Uh, any, anything you have to say about it uh, before we move to the regular budget? No. Okay. All right, good. Well, then HB6, that is the regular budget that exists in, uh, you know, the, the, what the, the, the legislature has to do every even-numbered year. Of course, like, the first thing anybody ever wants to talk about when they talk about the budget is SEEK. That is the, fun, the formula by which the legislature funds uh, you know, edu primary and secondary education, the K through 12 part of the education system. And HB6 does increase SEEK, but, you know, not really by enough. Uh, the, the thing, the other thing that's been a lot of news about this year is transportation, school transportation. And this bill continues to underfund transportation. And Andy Bashir, in his budget address and in the campaign, talked a lot about universal pre-K and teacher raises. Neither one of those things are included in this budget. So that's kind of where we want to start. Seek funding would increase by 4% in year one of this budget and then 2% in year two of the budget. Of course, budget every even numbered year so they go for two years so the first year four percent increase second year two percent increased um, while increasing seek is better than decreasing or leaving it at the same level um, one of the things to know about it is that ky policy this you know the center for economic policy this economic policy research house or you know think tank group they have for years published this chart that shows the inflation adjusted total amount of funding provided by seek 
And as of, you know, which peaked at around 2008 uh, and has since been declining. And as of 2024, we are 26% behind 2008 adjusted uh, inflation adjusted amount of real dollars being spent. Um, And by the uh, 2026, the end of this budget, if it were enacted the way that it's written now, according to KY policy, we would be 30% behind 2008 levels. So that is a little crazy to think about that, that, you know, we used to have so much more money going into education. And even if we are increasing the seek formula, every budget, it is not enough to keep up with inflation. Of course, inflation was quite a bit higher the past couple of uh, years. Um, but you know, even, even when it was low, we still weren't keeping up with it. And, and also with respect to the population in our schools, uh, you know, which is slightly declining, I believe, um, we are not putting as much money towards schools as we used to. We've talked about school buses a lot this year, uh, Jasmine. That the whole crazy story. I guess were you here at the beginning? I talked to I talked about school buses a lot with a lot of people while you were gone. I had a lot of conversations about school buses, but I think I talked about them with you at some point, right? Yeah. 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 We've been talking about school buses. Um, Jefferson County school buses, of course, uh, being foremost in people's minds, I think, just because of the issues that the school district faced at the beginning of the school year, kind of the disaster they had last kid getting picked up close to 10 p.m., um, you know, having all these changes, all this stuff going on. Um, and so I feel like more people than ever in the midst of this conversation have learned that it is the state's responsibility to fund school transportation, and they haven't really been doing that in recent years. So another thing that I think people are aware of because of a lot of pushes by you know progressive organizations is that Kentucky has a lot of cash reserves you know we're spending 1.7 billion dollars and still have a healthy amount in our rainy day fund and it's expected to increase um next year anyway um you know we still aren't fully funding you know uh school transportation which is just crazy to me given that there's no reason not to you know we have the money to do it we're just not doing it uh, the, the budget, as it's written, funds uh, school transportation at 80% in 2025 and 90% in 2026. So, you know, 20% deficit. Seems like it's mostly funded. That doesn't seem like that big of a deal. But that equates to $65 million in additional funding. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of money. That could pay for a lot of school bus drivers. You know, I think that JCPS said that they were really trying to hire like 100 new drivers. $65 million could, could hire you a lot more than mm-hmm. 100 new drivers. Um, you could get a lot of new buses. You could make it so that there were more redundancies in the system um, where you didn't have to work so close to the bone, where like small problems didn't cascade through the whole system and create the kind of disaster that we saw. You could get kids to, to school on time, but we aren't doing that, and I really can't think of a reason why we aren't. And that's really, really disappointing. Um, it seems like it's just kind of out of spite, honestly. So those are the first two things, SEEK and transportation. Two of Governor Bashir's biggest goals this year uh, for this year's budget were universal pre-K, which the, the governor did release a budget before um, the legislature released theirs. And his budget included $344 million for universal pre-K. And the governor also included 11% raises written into the budget for teachers. Neither one of those things made their way into HB6, which I guess isn't surprising, but it's still deeply, deeply disappointing. Legislative leaders said they wanted to include more money in SEEK increases, which would give school districts more flexibility to spend the money where they need it. But one of the things we've been talking about is like 
there is a policy outcome that we want to see from increasing teacher pay. We have a, a huge teacher shortage. It seems like a lot of the school districts across the state just uh, don't want to cope with it, I guess. I don't really understand why they aren't giving the raises that they could, but writing a raise for teachers into the budget would be a surefire way to increase wages, which would do a lot to help us prevent such a massive shortage in teachers as we have currently. Um, I, I understand where, you know, uh, the 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 legislature legislature's coming from saying you know we want to give more flexibility but i think that that flexibility hasn't created the outcomes that we've really wanted maybe if you maybe we wouldn't be so upset if you had a seek formula that kept up with inflation but we aren't doing that either um so we just need to spend more money on teachers so there you go um the legislature didn't do anything about pre-k at all uh you know i guess that they kept the programs they have in place uh, but there was no expansion of, of programs or services at all. And here's a quote from Jason Petrie, who, um, you know, is really important to the budget process. Quote, we do not have unlimited resource and what revenue we have belongs to the people of our Commonwealth. We have to prioritize spending and look at what Kentuckians get as a result of the money we allocate, unquote. Um, just, I know I've said this a couple times already, Kentucky has almost $4 billion in reserves. So saying we don't have... Um, unlimited resources and that we have to prioritize spending. I mean, that says a lot, you know, we have, we do have a lot of resources and we just aren't prioritizing children. That's basically what that says. No wonder Josie Raymond's decided to run for Metro council. This being one of her main issues that literally no progress, despite a lot of work by a lot of people. So that's kind of the main highlights I wanted to make about the budget as it's written. The 2024 budget also doesn't include cost of living adjustment for pensioners. You know, we do have a lot of people that receive a pension from the state government, and that's a fixed income. And uh, we've had a lot of inflation in the past couple of years, but retirees' total amount has not risen. Um, you know, if you have Social Security, you you do get a COLA um, every, I think, every couple of years. I don't exactly know, but they do happen. Um, there has not been a cost of living in increase for retirees in Kentucky's pension system since 2012, and there has been a lot of inflation since then. So basically, we are, uh, in, depending on how dependent um, our pensioners are on their pension for their income, that's less money that they have in their pocket than they did before. Again, we have the money. There's no reason not to do that. Uh, we just We just aren't doing that. So <laughs> what was the reaction from the governor's office? Guess what? He did not like the budget at all. Um, he <laughs> particularly blasted the difference between his budget seek formula and the one in HB6. He said that was a $1.1 billion difference. Um, you know, that's a lot of difference. Uh, $1.1 billion towards uh, schools that we have that the governor wanted to spend that the legislature just says no. So after ripping the seek funding and the lack of pre-K, which is another big thing, and the lack of teacher ratios was another big thing for Andy Bashir. Oh, yeah. Well, I wanted to also say he also continued to say that uh, they did not increase money for detention centers, which that is something that there was a lot of gotcha moments during the campaign last year in 2023 about um, the the governor and, uh, you know, his administration of the detention centers, the jails throughout the state. Um, and, and, you know, we really just don't you know, there's there's definitely things that the, the the administration probably could have been doing better, but there just isn't the funding we need in order to keep those places as secure and as safe as they can or should be. Um, and the the legislature didn't really do anything about it. Didn't meet the moment for uh, for increasing funding towards those detention centers to make them a little bit more humane for the people that have to live there. Um, Medicaid was kind of the same situation. It didn't meet the moment for Medicaid, um, and also the way that this budget 
treats natural disaster funding, basically putting handcuffs on the governor's response, uh, making him call a special session to be able to spend some money on that. Um, flexibility is really important in emergencies. Um, and, you know, I think the legislature just doesn't like that Andy Bashir is popular and don't like the, the fact that he's able to kind of like be a good leader in crisis uh, and are trying to prevent him from having the resources he needs to do that, uh, which that's really kind of crummy. That's like trying to attack the governor uh, for helping people. Um, I do think, though, that the biggest issue that the governor took uh, in his you know talk about the, the Republican budget was about workforce issues. So the budget eliminated 95% of unfilled positions in the executive branch. So the public, the you know, the public workforce, um, that that's a very significant cut. Uh, that's a, a lot of people who would have been hired, who there's funding to hire that they just don't have anymore. In addition to that, the governor is going to be required to submit quarterly reports on actions. And uh, the governor called that requirement quote the type of red tape that prevents things from getting done in government unquote so that is like you know most of the time republicans are about reducing red tape this is definitely about increasing it making the governor submit kind of pointless reports about what he's doing um to justify his his actions Hanging over the entire budget are the tax cuts that the Republicans have put in place, which require a certain amount of spending to be enacted. KY Policy, the aforementioned KY Policy, pointed out that the budget includes $2.7 million in new debt. Um, despite our cash reserves being larger than that, I said $2.7 billion. There's $2.7 billion in new debt. Our cash reserves could handle a lot of, of that. So in recent years, taking out loans in order to pay for capital expenditures hasn't really been something I thought was that bad because interest rates were really low. Like if interest rates are, you know, 0% in some cases, 1% or 2% in others, it's not a really big deal. It's money, you know, you're, you're not paying a lot in interest. But interest rates are a lot higher now. Ask anybody who's tried to buy a house recently um, what interest rates look like, and they are really high. Borrowing right now when you don't have to is not that smart. I'm not saying we should spend all of the money out of our cash reserves to pay for uh, you know these capital expenditures, but one of the things we could do is make larger down payments so that we're not taking out as much debt. Uh, that means paying less in interest at, at the cost of eating into our reserves. Of course, by taking out new debt, that means spending that you don't have to count against your tax cut, you know, framework so basically we are taking out debt in order to be able to reduce our income in the future uh which you know is a little insane but you know that is what the republicans want to do um the budget as written will go through a lot of changes before becoming law this is just kind of the first pass at it it will probably be one of the last things passed in the session but as of now i think it really fails to provide our state with the programs and spending we need to make progress and in a lot of ways this budget is just kind of petty beyond the obvious example of doing absolutely nothing for teacher ages and pre-k the budget significantly increases funding for prosecutors despite no change in funding for public defenders I guess just because Repu <laughs> just because Republicans like uh, prosecutors more and think that defenders are all Democrats, uh, you know, whatever uh, that that I feel like is very petty. Um, it's it's really unfortunate. I will say, in a lot of times in the past, I've bemoaned the lack of revenue that Kentucky has had. I've, I've said, you know, our state government isn't as in as good a financial position because we don't ask enough of our very wealthy people in the state. Um, we don't ask enough of people 
Um, and we don't have the revenue we need to meet the moment to support our citizens. However, it's really sad right now because we do have the resources. We have all this money in reserves. We're expecting our reserves to grow, be larger than they were last year, even though we're spending almost $2 billion out of them this year. Um, we can spend money. We have the capability to add continuous spending to the budget. We have the capability in our budget to, to you know, add programs to better support families, to better support our, you know, the structures we have to protect um, our, our citizens. And we're choosing not to do that. We're choosing actively not to make progress. And I think that we will do that as long as we have this legislature. So in the day, at the end of the day. I don't like this budget either. Me and Andy Bashir were on the same page about that. Um, so, Jasmine, I've talked a lot. I think it's like 20 minutes I've been talking about the budget. Anything you have to say, anything you're thinking about uh, with respect to HB1 or HB6? Yeah, I mean, I agree with everything that you've said. And I think the big theme for me is that it just all seems very intentional that the the biggest goal for Republicans right now is just like dismantling public education. And it's evident in a lot of their priority bills that they're filing around, you know, DEI and school choice and things like that. And then it's, it's also evident in their budget by barely increasing seek funding um, that doesn't even keep up with inflation and using, using the issues in public schools. A big thing the last few years have been Republicans complaining about behavioral issues in public schools now. And I certainly think that something like early childhood education programs or universal pre-K might help behavioral issues in schools um, if they had programs earlier, uh, you know. And so I, I think there's just all these and they also use the JCPS transportation issues to rail against what a disaster JCPS is when the problem is that they're intentionally not funding transportation. So I, you know, I think this is all just an intentional way to just, you know, drive public education into the ground that, you know, and it's something that they've been doing since they gained their supermajority. Yeah, I mean, that's totally fair. I think that, you know, a lot of the bills that we've highlighted already involve making public education worse on purpose. Um, and, and yeah, the, the seek funding being um, just slightly increased and the public trans or the school transportation bill being not fully funded, uh, despite the fact that we have so much in reserves. Yeah, that that makes it's a very, very good point. Definitely something um, that that is true that you know republicans want to be able to continue hammering these points and they're just counting on people not being able to see the full picture um and i guess that's why we're talking about it so yeah bad budget <laughs> uh will continue to be a bad budget until we have a better legislature um all right jasmine what else is going on out there 
man, there, there's a lot of other stuff going on too. Um, and we're just going to talk about a few things, but there's a lot. Um, so the first thing is house bill five passed out of committee. So last week, we talked about the Omnibus Criminal Punishment Bill, House Bill 5. And since we recorded, it passed out of committee 13 to 5 with one pass. All of the yes votes were Republicans. Two Republicans voted against the bill. Savannah Maddox and Stephen Doan and Kim Mosier passed. It was about two and a half hours of testimony with plenty of groups testifying for and against the bill. Most of the testimony for the bill came from um, law enforcement or prosecutors um, was, and then several different types of groups testifying against the bill. Some of the um, things talked about in opposition, though violent crime increased around the beginning of the pandemic, it decreased significantly in 2022 and property crime rates haven't increased in a decade and have been on the decline. Um, Kaylee Raymer from Kentucky policy testified and a couple of the things, um, just a couple of the highlights research shows that longer sentences are not effective in deterring crime she also talked about the portion of the bill that um, it would charge the person who sold someone who overdoses from fentanyl. Um, it would charge the person who sold it to them with murder. Um, and provisions like that disincentivize calling 911 when someone might be overdosing. Um, and so that really stuck with me, especially since, um, uh, you know, re Republicans over the years have typically like shown some bipartisan support for like drug addiction and drug treatment um, reforms. And this like kind of goes against all of that. Um, there was also discussion around the ban on street camping. George Eklund from the Coalition from the Coalition for the Homeless testified um, that there's been a 58% raise in fair market rent since 2018. And in the same time, we've seen a 73% increase in our homeless numbers. Um, and so there, there's been a lot of pushback on this bill, but it has 52 co-sponsors. Um, which is, you know, already a majority. And it was posted on today's orders for passage. Robert, do you know if anything's happened since we have started recording? I don't know if anything's happened since we started recording, but I don't think it's passed. Um, but I'll check. I'll check. Um, I did, um, did want to say, like, I do really think the uh the thing about the unintended consequences is really important um you talked about it with respect to uh um the fentanyl and and calling 911 when somebody is overdosing if you sold them the fentanyl you don't want to get you know uh 
death penalty or whatever. You don't want to get mm-hmm. <laughs> that. But I think another thing that was mentioned there was the three strikes law and the kind of like if you have two strikes, what you're willing to do to not get a third strike and how there's been a lot of evidence that um, a, a lot of people have, you know, been more violent towards police officers and first responders trying to arrest them for their third um, violent felony. And that's actually resulted in, in more cop deaths um, at the hands of, you know, people who uh, are committing their third felony because, you know, it's either get away or spend the rest of your life in prison anyway. Um, so that's uh, that there's a lot of yeah. unint- that seems like that this bill is, you know, a lot of very easy, easy to see unintended consequences that are right. And, and the the same thing with giving business owners stronger protections around using reasonable force you know there there's a lot of studies about you know when you introduce more guns that equals more violence and so so yeah i think there are a ton of unintended consequences surrounding this bill um but it has passed out of committee it is on the move um you can call the legislative line if you want to oppose it you should definitely do that especially if you have republican representatives um so that's hb5 um the next thing we want to talk about is a kind of weird story that um ended up going national because of who the legislator is. Um, So survivor winner turned Republican representative Nick Wilson filed a bill that removed first cousins from Kentucky's incest law. So Nick Wilson filed HB 269. And one of the things that it did was it struck first cousins from Kentucky's incest statute. But what the law actually did was made the incest law more harsh overall. So it expanded the definition of incest to include any sexual contact. So not before it was sexual intercourse or like deviant sexual activity. And now it includes any sexual contact and he would make it he would make that a violent offense, which of course we've talked about violent offenses on the podcast many times. Um, A violent offense makes the punishment much more harsh. So it, it, I think what people like what kind of got missed in this whole story about the bill that he filed was it actually makes the incest law a lot harsher than it was before. But it did take first cousins out of it. He came out and said that it was a mistake and withdrew the bill. And then the bill was refiled as House Bill 289. I think Olivia Krauth was, she was the first person who found the bill and made this public. And then it got tweeted out by others local reporters reported on it and then it just kind of took off and it was even discussed on Jimmy Kimmel. Um, So it, it wasn't a great look for Nick Wilson and he said it was an accident and he's going to refile the bill, but it's a good bill and he hopes it gets a second chance. I kind of have 
a bit of a hot take here. And I, I kind of wonder if he didn't mean to strike first cousins from the incest law, but maybe the bill was meant to keep first cousin incest from yeah. being like the violent offense. I see what you're saying here. And that like, actually makes sense. Because, yeah. because the bill, because the bill actually broadens what incest is and makes the punishment harsher. Perhaps it was meant to make first cousin incest not a violent offense. Like, it's still incest. It's still a felony. It's still punishable. But maybe it's not a violent offense. Because maybe first cousins don't know that they're cousins. Like, maybe there's those instances or, or, even or something like that. I mean, even still, like, I think, like, leaving the incest law as it is for, you know, two first cousins who are 17 and 16. Like, that's not good and and not something we should be supporting um but you know obviously like incest between like an an abusive father and child or you know um you know uncle and niece or whatever uh which is much more coercive like i could see i could see a case for making the punishments for that like uh much much easier than i could for like a 16 year old and a 17 year old um and and i see why there might be some validity and keeping those things a little bit different um that's a level of nuance that i don't think uh we're necessarily capable of when we're talking about incest in the state of kentucky um but yeah um definitely a weird, yeah. weird moment yeah so my take is that maybe striking it all together was a mistake but that maybe it was meant to be exempted from a violent offense but but now um now it could never we we couldn't have that um because it, it really it really took off and it blew up and i i've mentioned this on the show before i think but just a little bit about nick wilson nick wilson is a former public defender who was known on survivor like his whole story and character on the show like his identity was being a public defender and he became a prosecutor when he returned from the show and is now a co-sponsor of house bill five and other pro punishment bills. Like if, if you look at the list of bills he sponsors, they're all like increased punishment type of, of bills. Um, so if you were a fan of his on survivor, because he was a PD, it's not who he is anymore. Uh, turns out people lie to win that show, Jasmine. Did you know that? Could you believe it? Uh, yeah. I know that's, that, that is, is true. That is, well, but yeah. People like at the time, it was like PD representation from Kentucky. Yeah. And, and it turns out that he was a Republican that likes to punish people. Yeah. It yeah. is. It, you know, I remember like there's a big, big community of survivor people that I, I'm not a part of, but I know that it exists. And like they're big on like Reddit and stuff. And I remember last year when like the SB 150 bill, people were like, well, there's no way that Sam from Survivor will support SB 150. And it's like, of, cor- of course there is. He's a, <laughs> he's a Republican from rural Kentucky. Of course he's going to support SB 150. Um, really disappointing. There His name's well. Nick, but. What did I say? Sam. Sam. Sam Wilson was uh, Falcon from uh, 
the MCU. Oh, I was like, is there a different Sam? No. Sam yeah, the, different, different guy. In altogether. a different state Nick, legislature? Nick Wilson. I, yeah, I knew another guy named Nick Wilson. <laughs> second grade class. Not the same guy. At least I don't think. It could be. Um, but yeah, enough, enough about this weird story. Let's talk about something else. All right. So the next bill is Jennifer Decker's DEI bill. And so we we talked about this in our our first week of the legislative session. Uh, we mentioned some of these diversity, equity and inclusion ban bills. And so now we have the House bill and it's House Bill 9 sponsored by Jennifer Decker, who was she was also the sponsor of House Bill 470. Um, which is what her provisions kind of became, is what became Senate Bill 150. Um, But House Bill 9 would eliminate DEI offices, trainings, and race-based scholarships, among other things in Kentucky's public universities. It would essentially bar public post-secondary institutions from providing any kind of differential or preferential treatment to a student or employee based on race, religion, sex, color, or national origin. Um, So some of the other things besides like the ones I mentioned, like trainings and the DEI office, other things include like the prioritization of vendors, housing assignments, a ban on investigating bias incidents, um, which that seems bad that you couldn't do that if someone's getting like harassed because of what in here seems bad <laughs> reason. Yeah. Um, you, you can't require courses that promote discriminatory concepts. Um, can't require or like incentivize faculty DEI trainings. And so there's a lot, there's a lot in here that it, it would get rid of at public universities. And um, we, we've seen bills like this, um, Florida passed one. And I think something I've seen that's happened there is like they, one college, like they got rid of a gender studies program because they believed like that those courses like fit under, you know, what their law said they couldn't do, um, and so, so I wonder what happens to like classes like that. Um, but that's House Bill Nine. It's just one of three, at least three that I know of, um, DEI-related bills. There are two others in the Senate. Um, another w- one in the Senate that focuses on colleges, like this one, and then one that focuses on K through twelve, which we kind of mentioned a couple weeks ago. Yeah, this is another bill that's like really ripe for having unintended consequences, right? Like what 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 are discriminatory con- discriminatory concepts? Like that there's definitely ways that that could get interpreted that get really wonky really quickly. Yeah, ban on investigating bias incidents could mean really really heinous stuff could be like, well, we're not investigating that cuz we're not allowed to cuz it involves, you know, bias. Prioritization of vendor stuff has been ongoing in most public institutions forever, where it's like black and minority-owned businesses get, you know, a preferential treatment as do like veteran-owned businesses and stuff. Like, and it's like you know that's that's like kind of how we support 
a lot of you know minority owned businesses that don't get a lot of support otherwise like they really depend on these public contracts so that means probably mm-hmm. that, that entire infrastructure could could crumble like there's a lot of things that could happen because of this bill and not a lot of them are are good in my opinion i guess uh, jennifer decker disagrees but yeah there you go and the last thing we wanted to talk about is um bills surrounding source of income laws um so the the first one is stephen west bill senate bill 25 it would prohibit local governments from forcing landlords from accepting section 8 vouchers so our guest today um cassie chambers armstrong said that this bill would violate louisville's source of income law which is an ordinance that passed unanimously, you know, with bipartisan support in 2020. And it, it prevents housing discrimination based on a tenant's source of income. A spokesman for Mayor Greenberg also believes the bill would block Louisville's enacted protections against Section 8 discrimination. Senator West said that if Section 8 is voluntary, and it currently is, there would never be a problem. He said that he is in conversation with others about perhaps amending some of the language, but that may or may not happen. Um, So I don't know what that means. It probably means may not happen. (laughs) Literally every outcome is covered under may or may not happen. Yeah. Um, It it did pass out of committee 8 to 1 with... Cassie Chambers Armstrong being the lone no vote. Um, and then I saw today that um, maybe the even worse version of this bill, it, it seems like with Stephen West's bill, there was at least like some room for discussion to like change the language um, and that he was maybe listening to some people. Um, but a bill in the House, House Bill 18, actually bans source of income laws that passed the house today um, on party line 74 to 20. And so that would preempt Louisville's law. And I believe Lexington has been working on passing one of these source of income laws and it would prevent them from doing so. And Bill Hollander, who's a, a former Metro council person, from Louisville, um, he wrote an op-ed about these bills that was really good and, and talked about how um, source of income laws and these housing anti-housing discrimination laws used to be really bipartisan um, when they were like when they originally came about because people were really concerned about people being denied housing because they you know, we're using like federal, like veterans benefits. And it it was all about making sure that we house veterans and that where their money was coming from didn't matter. Um, And and now, you know, Republicans (laughs) don't seem to care. This whole whole piece of this movement is just so gross to me for a lot of reasons but i mean when you combine it with hb5 which you know makes outside you know camping uh, illegal camp like camping illegal um for homeless folks so it's like okay you can't be homeless or else we're gonna throw you in jail 
Um, but if you, you know, get some sort of federal subsidy to get you into a house so that you can come into compliance with that law, you can't use it because, you know, your landlord may think you gro- you're gross and smell bad or whatever, and we don't want your kind or whatever. So it's like, what what do you, like, what do you want to do with the poor people in this in the state? Like, what do you what do you expect from them? What is it that you you know you just want them to just disappear to die? Like, I don't understand like where where what the world is that they're trying to build looks like. Like, what is it? This doesn't even leave room at all for anybody who doesn't look like them, who doesn't have as much money as they do. Um, and it's just like it just. It's either it's either naive, uh, missing, just obtuse, missing, not being able to look at the way that the world is, or it's just, just literally the most cruel thing cruel. I can imagine. And and it's probably mm-hmm. both, right? It is probably both. Um, once they get told about these things, it's not like they fix them. So I think they probably are ignorant. Then they are no longer ignorant, and they keep moving in the way that they did. So, I mean, it's just setting up to be a really horrible session. It is every year, but... Uh, you know, this is just really, really sad. I mean, in terms of just just taking advantage and doing the worst things you can imagine to the the people who are the most vulnerable in our whole whole society. So, you know, par for the course for the Republican legislature. Anything else you want to say about these bills or anything else, Jasmine? Uh, I think I've said enough for now. Yeah. All right. Well, that's it for this. Um, you know, luckily, our conversation with Cassie Chambers Armstrong is a little bit more hopeful. So let's go ahead and get to that. <laughs> Cassie Chambers Armstrong is a member of the Kentucky Senate, where she represents District 19 in Louisville. Before winning her current seat in a special election, she was a member of Metro Council in Louisville. And before that, she was vice president of the Kentucky Democratic Party. Senator Armstrong is a native of Berea in Madison County and also has deep ties in Owsley County, which she wrote about in her book, Hill Hill Women. We wanted to talk to her today about her bill to remove the sales tax from diapers, which we talked about on our show last week. So Cassie Chambers Armstrong, welcome back to my old Kentucky podcast. Thank you all so much for having me. It is always a pleasure to get to spend some time with you. Yeah, first guest of the 2024 session, and I can't think of a better subject to talk about than SB 97, which is not a complicated piece of legislation, but it really would have a massive impact on the state. Uh, So, I mean, talk to us a little bit about how removing the tax on diapers would impact on would would impact our state and and why it's such an important issue to you. Sure. So. Um, uh, people, if you have young kids, you know this and know it in a very visceral way. Uh, the diapers are really, really expensive. Uh, for a long time, I had two kids in diapers at the same time. My kids are 16 months apart. Um, it was expensive for us. There are so many families that they really struggle every single month to be able to afford diapers. And there's no dedicated program that helps a family afford diapers. So you can't use Medicaid. You can't use SNAP. There aren't programs that sort of say, okay, we're here to help you purchase diapers. And of course, diapers are a necessity. It's something a family has to buy. And so when they're too expensive, you see families making these difficult choices where they're either not changing their kid as much as they need to, uh, trying to find workarounds. This leads to health issues for the kid, higher healthcare costs, trips to the ER for diaper rash. Or you see a family making the decision, okay, I'll buy diapers, but I'm not going to buy as much food or I'm taking it for my rent money or I'm not buying the other things I need for my child. And so we've seen other states pass 
this kind of measure. Really, most of the time it's done in sort of like an omnibus tax package. Uh, and when you lower the cost of diapers and remove the sales tax, you see actually very little income on diaper purchasing in higher income areas. But you see changes in diaper purchasing in lower and middle income areas because people finally feel like they have the financial resources to buy all of the diapers they need. So it's a really simple policy. It's a really effective policy. It gets rid of one of the sort of prices, uh, expenses that families have to bear on their own and bear in a regressive way that most impacts our low-income families. And so uh, I've been really heartened by the bipartisan support it's gotten and think, you know, we're, we're making some progress on the issue. Yeah, we'll definitely get to that. I will say uh, diapers is what got us to finally bite the bullet and join Costco. But uh, yeah, it's expensive for everybody. Uh, and, and anything that we can do to help parents, I think is a great idea. Um, you yeah, mentioned, I, yeah, go ahead. If I can just add, um, it also, so it applies to infant diapers and diapers for toddlers, which is what most people think about. It also includes adult diapers, which is something we often don't think about, but those are also very, very expensive, um, for folks who need those, for folks who are caring for someone who is older. Uh, that is also a medical need that there is no assistance program. You can sometimes get it covered, um, through different medical routes, but it's really, really hard and it's not always reliable. So um, also includes those products as well. Right. There's a really nice section in the bill where it goes into the definition of diapers so that you make sure it's included. So uh, I, I definitely enjoyed that that part of the bill. So um, insofar as it exists, like the opposition to this bill, which you mentioned has a lot of bipartisan support, does the, the opposition does kind of center around the cost of the state. Um, so, you know, I know that you have made some statements about this already. So can you talk to us a little bit about, you know, whether you think the state can afford this? And then if so, uh, like, what are the costs to the state for this for this, uh, you know, policy change? Yeah. So when we look at the billions of dollars that we're talking about in a state budget, the cost of this measure really is just pennies um, in the bucket. It's a $10 million fiscal impact bill. That's $10 million directly back into the pockets of families with young kids across Kentucky. Really, really good investment. Um, I think that that $10 million price tag is high, quite frankly. So basically, the state would be foregoing $10 million of sales tax that we would be collecting on diapers instead of uh, letting families keep it. What we know, both from academic studies and also just from sort of lived experience of people with kids, is there are always so many other things you need to buy for your child. Um, if you're, you know, if it's not diapers, it's um, baby food, it's some sort of bouncy chair, it's a swaddle, it's uh, baby ibuprofen, there's always something that you need to buy. And so I think what we're going to see is that we actually won't see an overall decrease in the money that we're getting in. We're going to see families say, okay, this is great. I can afford all the diapers that I need to buy. And now I have money left over that I can buy this other thing for my child or for my family. And so um, I don't think it's going to financially impact the state. I think it's actually a really good investment in our state and a really good investment in families. Yeah. And so far as it helps, insofar as it affects people, it's just money right back into the pockets of the people who need it the most. And also just as uh, a bit of like context, I think the state spends like $75 million on like film tax incentives. So, you know, which is more important. I don't know. 
Uh, yeah, it's uh, we have all kinds of things that we either don't collect sales tax on things that we consider necessities, which diapers certainly are. We also have all kinds of other tax incentives that we use to encourage certain types of things, help different groups. Um, and so, you know, this is very much in line with the things that we should be valuing as Kentuckians and the things we should be investing in as a general assembly. Yeah, absolutely. So you mentioned the bipartisan support of your bill, you've managed to put together quite a co- quite a coalition around it. Five Democrats and six Republicans are sponsoring it, including seven women and a member of Senate leadership, Damon Thayer, and a committee chair, Whitney Westerfield, are both co-sponsors. So how did you build such a varied coalition during the interim of the session? Honestly, it's a lot of one-on-one conversations. It's... Um, I think in some ways it's kind of almost a funny conversation to have with people. You go up and you're like, can I talk to you about diapers today? I just need five minutes to talk to you about diapers because it's a big deal. Uh, And honestly, a lot of people, they just haven't thought about it. It's, you know, there are so many things that we think about as legislators and policymakers because it is such a simple bill and simple issue and simple idea. You can convey why it's important really quickly. And I didn't once have someone say, no, like, I don't think that that should be a priority. No, I don't get that. Um, everyone I talked to was really supportive of the idea and it made sense. Okay. Yeah. Let's, let's classify diapers like the necessity they are. Let's make them more affordable for families and let's put dollars into the pockets of families with young kids. Um, so it's those one-on-one conversations. It's also being fortunate enough that we had a joint interim hearing on it um, during the interim where we sort of got members of the House together and members of the Senate together. And I had a chance to explain the bill and explain the issue. And really, more so than me explaining it, having people from the community come and explain it was really impactful. Um, having folks from Kentucky's Only Diaper Bank, which is run as a ministry through a church, come and talk about their work and meeting diaper need throughout the state of Kentucky and what a struggle it is. That's really how you tell the stories that stick with people. And I think how you how you build coalitions is you can argue with facts sometimes. Data can be hard to get to stick in your mind sometimes, but stories really do stick with people and help them understand what the problem is. No doubt about that. Absolutely. And and there are some, I mean, I don't know about good stories, but powerful stories, I guess, about this that, that, are, that you know, are part of this movement for sure. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the bill and how it's moving. So it currently sits, well, I actually didn't check it today, so I don't know if it moved today, but uh, last I checked it was in the Appropriations and Revenue Committee. Um, it doesn't have a hearing scheduled yet, I don't think. Um, so how confident are you that this bill is going to move? And what do you uh, expect that, you know, we'll be talking about it moving through, uh, through the Senate? So I feel pretty confident that we will get rid of the sales tax on diapers this session. Now, nothing is ever final. Crazy things happen. And I never want to say, yes, I'm absolutely certain. But at this particular moment, I'm feeling pretty good. Um, I don't expect that you'll see the bill as it's sitting right now begin to move a lot. And that's because the Kentucky Constitution says any bill that raises revenue has to originate in the House. Now, it doesn't say a bill that cuts revenue or foregoes revenue has to originate in the House, but there's sort of a longstanding tradition of viewing those as so related that a bill that does those things has to come out of the House. Um, And what you've seen Leader Thayer say publicly is that he would um, 
be in favor of adding it onto a bill that comes out of the house. So we'll see a lot of bills related to taxation, related to families that will be sent to us from the house side. And then so long as what we do is germane to the title of the bill, we have the ability to add it on as an amendment. And so um, I think you'll see something like that happen. Honestly, however it gets done is a win. If the House wants to send us a bill, that's great. If we want to amend a House bill, great. Um, And then really, if we do amend it in the Senate, it's just making sure that that stays in once it goes back to the House. So it's still important to have those conversations with House members and make sure they understand why this is an important change. Right. And that was actually going to be my next question, which is that, you know, in the media and in the conversations that we've seen you have about this bill, it seems like you've done a lot of really hard work in the Senate and gotten a lot of allies in the Senate to to take a stand in favor of this bill. Obviously, this isn't a House bill yet, and it may be added and sent back to the House. But I mean, have you been having those same conversations in the House? Do you feel like we'll see the same sort of bipartisan support for this bill in the House that we're seeing in the Senate? I do think we'll see similar support uh, in the House. For one, having that joint interim hearing with House members was a good chance to have some one-on-one conversations with folks, both before that, during that, after that. Um, also, you know, their uh, Representative Mosier has put together this work group that is bipartisan, bicameral of women legislators, and they worked during the interim on this maternal health bill, which is a really great piece of legislation. Um, that's also become sort of a forum to be able to talk before those meetings, after those meetings um, with these women legislators who care about a lot of these issues that impact families and say, by the way, can I talk to you for just a second about my diaper bill? Um, I've been talking about it as the diaper tax. You know, right now we have a tax on diapers. Let's get rid of the diaper tax. Um, and people are immediately interested in that. They're like, wait, what, what, what diaper tax? Yeah, let, let's get rid of the diaper tax. And so, um, again, you never know. But as things sit right now, I'm feeling very optimistic. Well, that's good to hear. While we have you here, we wanted to ask you about other legislation a little bit. So the session is already off to a fast start with the proposed budget being released last week and then discussions around issues um, like diversity, equity, and inclusion and source of income discrimination. And most of the items being advanced in the legislature, especially like the, the priority items, are, are not things that you support. Um, is it hard to strike the balance between calling out bad legislation while not threatening a piece of legislation that you feel has an opportunity to pass? Yeah, I think it's a great question. Um, Obviously, your first obligation as a lawmaker is to be a voice for your constituents and for your district and make sure that you are standing up and speaking in favor of bills that uh, benefit your district and in opposition to those um, that that don't, that harm people um, and that you disagree with and think aren't good for the people you represent. Um, and so being in a super minority, you do a little bit more of that ladder, standing up and speaking against bills that you think are harmful um, than, you know, I was doing on Metro Council in the super majority. Um, and I found, you know, you always have to speak truthfully and authentically and powerfully on the things you care about. As much as anything, what I try to do is After that is over, we spend a lot of time together as a Senate body, and there are a lot of relationships. You just develop personal relationships with folks. And so I think it matters uh, after a floor debate 
you know, to sort of talk about your kids or about your weekend or about the UK game or whatever that might be before the committee hearing to be like, my kid was sick all night and like, I am tired. And how was your night? Um, Because I think people, you know, if they only know you as someone that disagrees with them, it's really hard to find common ground and want to work together. But when you begin to understand like, okay, this is a person that I disagree with on this thing, but I agree with them on this other thing. And I can talk to them as a human about some other stuff in life. um, I really think those relationships are helpful. And I do think as a society, we're moving to this place where a lot of us don't talk regularly to people we disagree with. Mm -hmm. We don't have a lot of friends uh, or just people we interact with that don't think like us. And I actually think it's good to be able to see people you disagree with as people, as humans, as folks you are striving to find common ground in some way with. And so, um, you know, I I like working with my colleagues and um, I am really grateful for a lot of the relationships I've been able to build. And I think they make me a better legislator representing my district that I have those and have that perspective. Well, anytime that you need Kentucky basketball talking points, you can call me or Jasmine and we'll make sure to tell you all about <laughs> Big Z and what he's up to. Uh, oh, I know you do not have to tell me about Big Z. I was watching that game um, and hollering in my living room. My four-year-old watched it with me and uh, fell asleep as I was like hooting and hollering and clapping. And uh, I, I told him the next morning, I was like, bud, you're going to have to like stay awake if you're going to be my game watching buddy. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Well, that's good. That's good to know. It's even more reason to vote for you. Uh, So, um, you know, okay, a little bit more seriously, you know, this bill is a big deal. Uh, It's $10 million basically into the pockets of of families, poor families who need it, um, you know, middle class families who could also use it. Uh, But but you know, your ambition when you run for office is is for things that are a lot bigger. Um, You know, you want to do big, important things to help better support families and, and to increase the way that the state government helps, um, to, you know, to support our, our, our families in our state. Um, you know, while this is a, a great piece of legislation and great progress, what, what is it going to take in your estimation to continue making progress in this direction? Um, what are ways that we can actually get to the place we need to go? Yeah, so I think a lot of it is incremental right now. It's uh, recognizing that, you know, each step forward is a step forward. And it's beginning to sort of lay the foundation for things to come in the future. Um, I hope we get this diaper tax done. And then I hope that that's a good way. Once you sort of start from the premise of, okay, families with young kids have financial needs and we should address them. I think the next step is, well, let's talk about my child tax credit bill that actually gives low income and middle income families a refundable tax credit per child based on their income, right? That's a much bigger bill, much more money directly to struggling families, but based on similar things, based on the idea that whenever you give families resources, they put those resources into their kids and that is good for the future of Kentucky. And so I'll be honest, I am not a patient person. I really sometimes uh, just want to charge full steam ahead. And some of my colleagues have to be like, you just got to like, you got to let the system play out one step forward, uh, one one sort of move at a time. Um, What I like about this bill is, and sort of the support it's gotten is it makes me feel like those steps forward can continue to happen. Um, That we can sort of reach this bipartisan common ground and work from there to make changes that actually help people. 
lastly, you know, this is a big movement. You are working on big pieces of legislation. You know, if people want to support your work or support, you know, the the issues that that you're talking about, how can they get involved in helping you? What are ways that they can connect with you to to you know um, help make some of these bills more of a, a reality in in this session and in future sessions? Yeah, so I love hearing from people that uh, support some of the work I'm trying to do. You can always reach out to me. Very easy to find me. You just got to Google my name and all of my contact information pops up. So be in touch. Uh, If I don't represent you, reach out to the people that do represent you and tell them uh, that you think some of these ideas, some of this legislation, getting rid of the diaper tax is a a good idea and that you would support that. You can also sign up. We all have legislative newsletters. That's a really great way to see what we're up to. We all have social media um, that we sort of put out there. You can see what's going on. Honestly, the most important thing is just to engage. Right now, we are in the middle of a legislative session where we'll pass hundreds of bills and they'll impact everything from sort of big policy areas that touch us all to smaller policy areas that are also very important but only impact a few people doesn't make them less important to pay attention to. Um, And so inform yourself, educate yourself, engage, feel empowered to demand the time of your legislators. We literally get paid with your tax dollars to be your voice in Frankfurt um, during this sort of condensed period of time each year. So um, don't be shy about reaching out and saying, I want to talk to you. I have opinions and I want to be heard. All right. Very good. Well, Cassie Chambers Armstrong, Senator Cassie Chambers Armstrong, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, We really appreciate you being on. Yeah, thanks for having me. Okay, Jasmine, how can people get a hold of us? They can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Pod. They can like our Facebook page and listen to our podcast on the podcast app of their choice. We also have a newsletter you can subscribe to at tinyletter.com slash newsletter. And we have a Patreon page where you can support the work that we're doing for as little as a dollar a month. You can do that at patreon.com slash my old Kentucky podcast. And last but not least, we're part of the Dimcast Network and the Ford Kentucky Network. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening. And we will see you next week.